difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to the 100th episode of The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here with... Tosh Robinson. Genevieve Kosky. Scott Tobias. Here on The Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So, every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and how it relates to a current movie. This week, we're going to look at two films starring Dustin Hoffman, separated by 50 years, but united by a common theme. The ways one generation tries to escape the one that came before it. I'm going to throw it to my co-host to tell us a little bit more about this movie. So here's to you, Tasha Robinson. Okay, that is the one joke about that song and my name I'm going to allow you this week, although I make no guarantees about how often I'm going to hum the song while other people are talking. <laughs> On the first of this week's episode, we'll be talking about The Graduate, a 1967 adaptation of Charles Webb's novel, directed by Mike Nichols and written by Buck Henry and Calder Willingham. Set in a prosperous corner of the Los Angeles suburbs, the film stars Dustin Hoffman as a recent college grad who returns home from somewhere out east and begins an affair with Mrs. Robinson, a family friend played by Anne Bancroft. Then we'll consider the older but not much wiser Hoffman character found in Noah Baumbach's latest, The Meyerowitz Stories, New and Selected, in which Hoffman plays an aging sculptor who has complicated relationships with his three children, played by Adam Sandler, Ben Stiller, and Elizabeth Marvel. In many respects, they're quite different movies, set in strikingly different milieus. The Graduate takes place in the waspy, materialistic West Coast. The Meyerowitzes are Jewish, artistic, and deeply rooted in New York. But both films consider what it means to try to create a life for yourself different from the one in which you were raised, and the difficulties of breaking away. And there at the center of both is Hoffman, standing first on one side of the generational divide, then on the other. We'll be back after the break. May I ask you a question? What do you think of me? Mrs. Robinson, you're trying to seduce me. <laughs> Scholar. We're all very proud of you, Ben. What is it, Ben? I guess about my future. Do you find me undesirable? Oh, no, Mrs. Robinson. I think I think you're the most attractive of all my parents' friends. I don't want to close my eyes. I might miss something. Maybe we could do something else together. Mrs. Robinson, would you like to go to a movie? The world is changing faster than you Mrs. Robinson, Benjamin. Hello, Benjamin. Hello, Mrs. Robinson. Hey, Ben. Elaine's coming down from Berkeley soon. I want you to call her up. But you won't ever take Elaine out, will you? I want you to promise me that. Benjamin, I thought I made myself perfectly clear about this. I have no intention of ever taking your precious daughter out again in our life, so don't get upset about it. You're the first person I could stand to be with. I just don't believe you would do that. Try me. That woman, that older woman that I told you about? Benjamin, will you just tell me what this is all about? Movies don't change, but we do. And some movies keep returning to remind us of this. The Graduate became a cultural phenomenon when it was released in December of 1967. And, like Bonnie and Clyde earlier that year, sounded an early signal that things were changing in Hollywood. Since then, it's been regularly re-released at major anniversaries, most recently returning to theaters in a restored version in April to celebrate its 50th. I have a couple of theories why. One, though The Graduate is unmistakably a 1960s movie, its themes are transferable. Each new generation looks out on an uncertain future, vows not to make the same mistakes as their parents, then has to confront how hard that can be. And two, it's a movie that rewards repeat visits over the years in a way that most movies don't, even if those repeat visits can be a bit alarming. Let's circle back to the second one after talking about the first, starting with a remarkable image. Nichols fills the graduate with images of water and drowning, and he's not subtle about it. Early on, we see Dustin Hoffman's Benjamin Braddock sitting in front of an aquarium. Later, we'll see him literally floating on a raft as he symbolically floats through the uncertain summer following his graduation. But the moment that captures the film in miniature comes when Benjamin's parents, played by William Daniels and Elizabeth Wilson, gift Ben with a scuba suit, then push him to make a public appearance wearing it before diving into the pool where he can really do nothing but stand still and breathe. They've given him everything he needs to explore the oceans, but expect him to stick to the waters he knows. So he stays put. What else can he do? 
But within that paralysis, Benjamin can see what he doesn't want, the life of his parents. They've done well for themselves and live in a home with every convenience available to the well-moneyed in 1967. But Benjamin can't stand to be around his parents' friends. One of whom drops the word plastics as if it's 1967's equivalent of open sesame, the key to the bright future he knows Benjamin will want to unlock. He doesn't even seem to want the sharp Alfa Romeo sports car his parents have bought him as a graduation gift, driving it like he hopes to total it. And like many who can't decide, Benjamin has his decision made for him. He's essentially claimed by Mrs. Robinson, played by Anne Bancroft, the wife of his father's partner. She asks him to drive her home, then, despite protestations, tries to seduce him. He doesn't give in until he does, and the two begin an affair that will last much of the summer. Despite his determination to keep away from it, Benjamin has become drawn in by his parents' world, almost from the moment he lands in California. It's only the arrival of the Robinson's daughter Elaine, played by Catherine Ross, that shakes him out of it, and, when the secret of his affair with Mrs. Robinson comes to light, gives his life a focus and gives him something to fight for. In the end, he wins. Sort of. In a discussion between Nichols and Steven Soderbergh captured on a commentary track for the film, both agree that the final shot of the couple looking baffled by what they've done forces viewers to reconsider the whole film. They've escaped, sure, but to a Santa Barbara city bus. And how far can that take them from their parents' lives? It's something, in one form or another, everyone with a dream has to confront at some point. How possible is the life I've imagined for myself, and how different will it be from the life I know? And that brings us back to the second reason I think The Graduate has endured. Watch this movie at 20, and it's the story of Benjamin Braddock rebelling against bourgeois conformity and a predatory older woman who wants him, then wants to foil him. Watch it a few years later, and it's the tragedy of Mrs. Robinson, a woman who had dreams of her own, who loved art, and now can't even talk about it. As you get older, you start to see doors close and possibilities vanish. If you're lucky, you don't end up bitter and spiteful and out of touch with your former passions. But lucky or not, it gets harder not to feel for her, and harder still to see Ben and Elaine forging a life that looks nothing like the one they've tried to escape. Ben, what are you doing? Well, I would say that I'm just drifting here in the pool. Why? Well, it's very comfortable just to drift here. Have you thought about graduate school? No. Would you mind telling me then what those four years of college were for? What was the point of all that hard work? You got me. Now listen, Ben. Look, I think it's a very good thing that a young man, after he's done some very good work, should have a chance to relax and enjoy himself and lie around and drink beer and so on. But after a few weeks, I believe that person would want to take some stock on himself and his situation and start to think about getting off his ass. The Robinsons are here. Hi, Ben. What are you doing with yourself these days? Oh, not too much. Taking it easy. <laughs> That's what I'd do if I could. Nothing wrong with that. Hey, Ben, Elaine's coming down from Berkeley soon. I want you to call her up this time. I will. Because I just think you two would hit it off real well together. Say hello to Mrs. Robinson, Benjamin. Hello, Mrs. Robinson. Hello, Benjamin. The Graduate is a movie that virtually every film enthusiast sees fairly early on in their explorations. It was for me. I think it's probably true for a lot of people here. What's everyone's history with this film, and what was it like to revisit it now? Can't do it. Can't do it. <laughs> hey, you're the one that scripted that. I, I'm probably going to make a couple Mrs. Robinson jokes here myself. Um, I wrote about uh, this movie back in 2008 for the AV Club in my book versus film column, and I kicked it off by talking about the fact that uh, my mom is a fundamentalist Christian who grew up with this movie and whose name was Mrs. Robinson. So I got to hear this song so many times <laughs> when I was like five or six years old. And I saw the movie. It, there must have been a TV edit at some point because I remember seeing this movie when I was way too young to understand most of what was going on. And then I remember revisiting it in college probably for a class. And I got to the nudity and I was like, what the hell? When did they splice this in? <laughs> How long has this been going on? Because of the approach, because it's so it's so aggressively choppy, I, I literally thought that somebody had just spliced it into the, the version <laughs> I was seeing because it 
came as such a surprise. But uh, by that time, I was also very much into the music of Simon and Garfunkel. And I was also, you know, a kid in college trying to figure out who I was. And so much of the film made sense on an emotional level, not just a plot level. This one's really stuck with me. Like the a, a lot of the visual images, especially that, that opening sequence and that closing sequence, have really stuck with me over the years. It's a film I like to revisit uh, every few years if I can. I also have like vague memories of seeing it when I was far too young to see it, probably my mom watching it, whether on cable or video cassette. but I didn't really sit down and watch it myself until graduate school when I was basically the same age as uh, Benjamin Braddock. And <laughs> I specifically remember I watched it on my very small like 12 inch television that was like in my dorm room. <laughs> so I didn't take as much notice at the time of what I took a lot of notice of on this viewing, which is the style. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, this is an incredibly visually compelling movie and the amount of storytelling that happens through both camera work and editing is just something that I think you can study and appreciate and see new things every, every time. You know, in that keynote, Keith, you pointed out a couple things. I was like, oh, okay, that's a reading I hadn't considered before. So I think, you know, it, go, it speaks what you say about this is a movie that you can revisit again and again and not necessarily notice new things every time, but have a new angle on things as you change as a person. Yeah, it's funny. So many of the my first viewings of, of these classic films came, you know, on a very small screen on VHS, or if I was lucky, Laserdisc at the University of Georgia Library. And so, um, and so, I, I'm sure I've gained an appreciation for the uh, visual style of it over the years. Um, and I think it, it existed fairly early on as a criterion, did it not? Maybe Laserdisc era, but not. It's fairly new to Blu-ray. Sure, but in any case, I think your reading of it is correct in terms of how you interpret it or what you end up focusing on at certain points of your life if you're a young person maybe a young man in my case benjamin's plight is what you're tracking or what you're engaged by and and uh now as a middle-aged person i i'm feeling much more of a connection with mrs robinson yeah. and all the things that she has to go through it's uh it's interesting in that respect and, and of course uh, the irony now of just a baby boomer uh worrying about how his parents have screwed, screwed up his life is a pretty ironic thing to experience in uh 2017 yeah i mean i mean i i found on early viewing it's way too easy to see myself and in, in and braddock and a sort of like free-floating discontent and and then kind of latching on to grand romantic gestures and now i'm just I, i'm embarrassed by the person i used to be i saw myself in that too and i, I think it works no matter which way you're looking at it. Can I tell you the moment that I realized that I was on the other side of the generational divide and, and kind of the cultural divide uh, in, in this movie is the plastics line when mm-hmm. I found myself thinking, he's right, plastics would be a really good thing to get into in 1967. Oh, my, my father my father says that any time the, the graduate comes up, he, he mentions that scene because he, he made his living in plastics. So he constantly, it, when he's ever asked about why he did what he did, he, he, he would say, plastics. You know, it's weird i like even even my first sort of conscious viewing of this in college i think i sympathized with mrs robinson maybe a little more than you guys did i wonder why it it really wasn't people singing jesus loves you to my mom all the time at school no it was it 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 was the fact that she was a much more interesting woman than elaine was and she seems to be the only character in the film that knows what she wants. And it it doesn't always make her happy. But I mean, part of uh, identifying with Benjamin when you're in college is about identifying with his, his aimlessness and his search for identity. Identifying with her is actually like for a film that was made in the 60s with a woman exploring her sexuality was about trying to figure out who you were sexually, which is also something that often happens in college. And the fact that she knows what she wants and she goes for it and she's unashamed for it just seemed very different from most of the films that I was watching in that era. And uh, I, like, I liked her for it pretty early on. Did, did you recall like processing or noticing the sadness? No. Movie? Nope. Because that's what really stood out to me on this viewing. It's just what a fundamentally sad, kind of tragic character that is. Yeah, yeah it's like the combination of like hunger and sadness at the same time. Yeah. But uh, you know what, what occurred to me now, because uh, we were talking about Mike Nichols' career before the taping and how he was going to do this, uh, but then he ended up doing Virginia Woolf first, is just how much Mrs. Robinson and her husband uh, mirror those two uh, characters played by Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton and, and Virginia Woolf, you know, who you can visualize just drinking themselves uh, into a coma every night arguing. If uh, Burton's character 
was a little more oblivious and cared a little less. You know, he has kind of Mr. Robinson in some ways. Yeah. I still don't get the sadness in her character as much as I get the anger in her character. Mm. I mean, she goes way off the rails by the end of the film, and she not only loses sympathy for me, she becomes almost not a person anymore. You know, she becomes this sort of iconic monster that wants to hold Elaine back in particular, that wants to, like, own her and devour her and and make her over in some weird way. I wonder how much of that is because Benjamin Braddock is our point of view character and his perception of her is changing in that moment, too, because I think that it's definitely possible to read an element of pity into their relationship coming from him as well as her, you know? I can see a reading of this film where he perceives her as somewhat sad during their affair, and then when it turns around and goes bad on him, she becomes angry and vengeful and scary. Yeah, I always, I've struggled with that element of the film because because I, I think that after that extraordinary shot toward the end where everything is laid out there and you get that medium long shot, I suppose, of, of her kind of shrinking off mm-hmm. into the corner, um, that's almost the last time that we see her as a fully human character. She almost is brought back into the fold of the sort of monstrous older generation. I mean, and, and she's she's paired up in that final, in that scene in the church, they cut back and forth between her getting angry and her husband getting angry and their, their expressions in the, are the same, you mm-hmm. know, and it just, it, it felt like a betrayal of that character to me, but uh, the way you seem to think is maybe we're just seeing this from Benjamin's perspective. Yeah. I, my, I can sympathize with her a little bit too, because, you know, I think in her own way, she wants a better life for Elaine and, and this drippy kid that she's been, been you know, <laughs> shacking up with in a hotel room all summer probably does not represent to her a better alternative. I kind of reminded her of Whit Stillman's alternative reading of, of this movie in Barcelona where, you know, she's marrying the cool make-out king of the fraternity and this, this guy, this Dustin Hoffman character gets in the way of it, you know? I, my f- impression of that is that because he's with her that she doesn't think that he's good enough for her. That was my feeling. Yeah, there's a little bit of that too. Yeah. I mean, it's, like, it's, like, it's like I wouldn't want to belong to a club that would have me as a member. <laughs> I think she is also being protective of a lady yeah. in her, oh, in for her own way. Yeah, I think she's very... It's not just, it's not just uh, spite. Yeah, I think she's very aware of the damage the knowledge of their affair would would do to Elaine. And I think, like, despite her threats to Benjamin that she would tell her, I don't think she ever would have if Benjamin hadn't done it. Oh, and that's I, interesting. I, I mean, yeah, that's my perception. I don't think there's any way we could know that because mm. it's not in the movie. But, but I think that also maybe accounts for the level of her rage because he did the thing that she was trying so hard not to do and hurting Elaine. Well, that's, that knowledge. that's interesting. It's just fascinating. I mean, I, I do see her as protecting Elaine, but I see her protecting what she sees as like Elaine's future, not protecting her from, from the bad news. Yeah, I don't know. I just I just think of how scarring it would be to find out that your your mother and your boyfriend were having an affair. You know, like that is one of, I think, one of the most traumatic things that could happen to Elaine. And she didn't want it to happen, and it did. Drive down the block. Mrs. Robinson, Elaine and I have a date. We're going for a drive. Do exactly as I say. Now, it seems to me... Listen to me very carefully, Benjamin. You are not to see Elaine again, ever. Those are my orders. Is that clear? Mrs. Robinson, do you think I can can make things quite unpleasant? How? In order to keep Elaine away from you, I am prepared to tell her everything. I don't believe you. Then you better stop believing me. I just don't believe you would do that. Try me. We could almost see this, though, in the context of, you know, the the woman's weepy of the, what, 30s and 40s of like like Mm -hmm. a a female self-sacrifice of her willing to totally sabotage her own life relationship with her husband relationship with her daughter with their community whatever if it assures her daughter's happiness in the long run and so if it's such a bad idea to her thinking that she'd be with benjamin that she's willing to sabotage everything in order to in order for her daughter to be happy whether their relationship is healthy or even still exists or not well, yeah, yeah frank rich's essay in the criterion <clears throat> collection version of this points out that that, that for all the forward-looking stylistic choices made in this movie that also has some roots and some old forms there's almost a screwball comedy type construction to it especially with like the bride running away from from the altar at the last minute it's, 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 there are yeah. some old old-fashioned touches here 
I think one of the keys here, though, is that I, I think that Mrs. Robinson's affair with Ben is fundamentally self-destructive on both of their parts, and that they're both embracing that self-destruction because they're both very unhappy people. I think that his his knee-jerk rejection of her at first comes from a much more honest place than him going back to her. And I don't think either one of them are necessarily getting that much out of the relationship. He's getting an answer to his, his aimlessness and not knowing what he wants. She's you know, getting an answer to her loveless, miserable marriage, but neither one of those answers are good answers. And I think part of the reason that she so strongly resists uh, Elaine ending up with Ben in any way is not to protect her affair, not to protect the knowledge of her affair, but because she knows that Ben is kind of a chump, like that he doesn't know what he wants and he does not have a good future. She sees like handing Elaine off to uh, the, the golden boy as kind of ensuring she's going to have the life that Mrs. Robinson would have wanted to have, which ironically, it's not the place she wanted to have. She didn't want to be forced into the marriage she was forced in. So she forces her daughter into a marriage. So like, here's my question about that, which I think is totally valid. But uh, how does she know that he is a drip and a loser when she decides to go after him? Like, like that is something that I'm not getting from the movie. And it, it very well might be the case for that character. But at that point in the movie, all we've seen of Ben is his the celebration of him at his graduation yeah. parties. So. I'll circle back to that, but I do want to point out that the whole, you know, forcing her into a marriage or, you know, strongly encouraging this marriage that she doesn't necessarily want is exactly what happened to her. And it's another part of the texture of the film where generations cannot get away from the mistakes that the previous generations made. But anyway, you were saying, how does she know that she's, he's a, I don't think, I think he reveals himself as such. Uh, maybe, But not maybe. until she's already decided to seduce him. No, sure. no. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're forgetting, like we, we get the conversation between him and his father early on. And, and his father says, like, these are our good friends. They've known you since you were born. They've had a long time to observe him as a drip. Okay, I thought you meant hmm. I, th- I thought you meant it more in the case of like he has graduated college and he has no idea what he's about to do and he's at loose ends. I, I'm gonna Occam's razor this whole thing. I think that they are both pleasure seekers who have a great time together. That is my interpretation really? of, of that of that. And I think that she, for, you know, that she sees this kid who's who's inexperienced but attractive. He's the track star. You know, if you see that one of my favorite shots of the movie is you know when he's just walking through the party and it's the first time that we get a glimpse of mrs robinson and she is so focused on him in Mm -hmm. such a different way than everyone else and she she knows what she wants she is she is seeking pleasure and she she gets what she wants Uh, and i think he gets what he wants too he's inexperienced she she leads him out of that inexperience and he he has a very nice summer but it can't last forever she's also kind of the only person at that party that sees him Everyone else is kind of there for the party and, and, and vaguely to celebrate them. I think mm-hmm. they're, they're people who kind of look for an excuse to get together and celebrate, and this is as good as any. She goes after what she wants, yeah. I think. I do think she goes after what she wants, but I don't know. I, I always come back to this shot of him pulling himself up onto the float, pulling himself up onto her body, and neither one of them to me like looks like they're having fun, like they're seeking pleasure, like they're super involved in the sex. I feel like both of them are looking for something to do, and what they find to do is each other. I think it's the most pleasure they're going to get in their current mindsets and their current situation. Oh, I think you're yeah. very right about that. Yeah, I mean, you can imagine like when he goes goes back to the hotel bar with Elaine and everyone is saying hello. What's his What's his Glad- fake name? Gladstone. Gladstone. Mr. Gladstone. <laughs> hello, Mr. Gladstone. And there's just you get that sense of just he's like had this summer of just confidently striding into this hotel and they've had this this fling and like his attitude is so much more confident than it was when he was encountering Buck Henry and Buck Henry's t- asking him if he's here for uh, an, aff- an affair and all that sort of thing. This all speaks to another issue, which is casting. And, and Benjamin is on the page, a, a young, waspy, all-American athletic type. And the part <laughs> went to Dustin Hoffman, who was a short Jewish actor who was pushing 30. Among those considered were uh, Robert Redford, who Nichols had worked with on Broadway. And uh, the stories Nichols tells about it is, is that he's, he says to Robert Redford, what, have you ever been rejected by a girl? And Robert goes, what, what do you mean? <laughs> um, so, What do those words mean when put together in that order? <laughs> yeah, and, and yet, I, I mean, who else could play this part? I mean, Hoffman is perfect. Why, why does it work? Because it's not Robert Redford. My God, that, yeah, that would just be so different. I am going to quote director David O. Russell uh, speaking about uh, Dustin Hoffman. Hoffman's casting, which I think is a really succinct way to put it, is they cast an outsider as an insider who feels like an outsider. Yeah. Um, and I think that just that kind of comes through in every bit of the performance. Yeah, I think you're right. He, he seems a misfit to everyone around him. 
I think there's just a vulnerability to him that is so important to that character. Like we were talking a little bit before we started recording about the degree to which we like this movie. And this is one of those movies that I like without much liking anybody in it, including him. I think some of the things that he actively does are loathsome. But I also think when he starts making less loathsome choices, he's still kind of making them for the wrong reasons. I think he's just kind of like weak-willed and aimless and sad, and he lets that slop over onto other people in bad ways. But you can see the humanity in him. You can see the vulnerability. You can see sort of the weakness. And it just it completely changes who the character is. I mean, I read the book and the book the book is very, very choppy and staccato. It's mostly just dialogue. There's not a lot of description. But the dialogue was mostly just like put on put straight into the screenplay. And the dialogue itself doesn't give you any kind of sense of, of Ben as a human being. It doesn't give you any kind of sense of him being sad or lonely in particular. He's just kind of annoying. And Hoffman's just Hoffman's face, his like his sad basset hound face, and his kind of like hunched in way of holding himself kind of make you want to take him home and pat him on the head or, yeah. you know, take him home and sleep with him if you happen to be a 40 year old woman. And, and the squeak he makes a little, which <laughs> <laughs> is like my favorite little detail of this performance, which apparently comes from Nichols. Apparently that was a mannerism of Nichols that uh, Hoffman chose to add to the character. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I mean, I like these characters i mean they're flawed people but uh but i feel for them yeah me too i i don't dislike them i find i find them very uh sympathetic in their way while recognizing they're making some terrible choices yeah i, I don't like ben's behavior specifically in the second half of the film where he, he basically stalks mm-hmm. elaine you know in a very uncomfortable way <laughs> and the film uh, is treats it as being uncomfortable while also not necessarily yeah, uh, kind, kind of signing off on it at the same it. time yeah, yeah. yeah like it gives us the character of the boarding house or, or wherever uh, he's staying Mr. The, Roper. Uh, it's not actually his name right no it's one of the oh. fellow <laughs> yeah. oh god i got it got it yeah. these references of yours <laughs> yeah like he or you kind of have that character paying lip service to the suspiciousness of ben's behavior but in the end the that behavior i guess works out for ben but of course you know the ending i, I think puts a big question mark on i think that. elaine i i think i think Catherine ross is is terrific in this movie and and all oh, those eyelashes yeah but uh, <laughs> um, but, and a uh, pretty underdrawn character yeah that's just it i think mm-hmm. the character is, is a little it's a little cryptic and, and to say the least well but, especially at the end like not not just at the very end when they're both cryptic and it's kind of beautiful but sometimes the whole end sequence just seems like a dream to me i've never quite understood how we've decided you're getting married in the 60s in america could translate to her ending up at the altar cooperating a few Uh, days later a few days later like it just that that piece doesn't fit together and then i'm not sure that i understand her uh her her running to ben in the way that she does i mean maybe it's to escape the parents who apparently drug drug her there in chains and possibly in drugs because i don't know how else they got her there I, i think you have to buy the a they fall in for each other which i think they have chemistry and you can do that and and b elaine's always had one foot you know, not on board with her parents' whole plan as well. Um, and again, I think the character is a little underdeveloped, so it's a little, you don't necessarily see that right away, but I think it works well enough for this movie. I think you do also have the specter of the counterculture hanging over everything mm-hmm. that happens while, you know, never actually putting Ben and Elaine like within that counterculture, but they are just kind of, I think, surrounded by it. Kind of one of the images that always sticks out to me is uh, when they're on their first date and uh, eating at the the drive-in and the psychedelic car is next to them playing that loud music, you know, and they they end up retreating inside of the convertible, you know, put the top up and, you know, go back into their little uh, cocoon of privilege. But this different world is just like right outside their window there, you know, and I think there might be something to the idea of they're drawn in by the allure of the rejection of that straight society. Yeah. Nichols was criticized at the time by some for ignoring Vietnam, because if you're making a movie about young people, you have to make a movie about Vietnam. But it's it's just to me it's such a 60s movie and it's exactly what you talk about it's like it does seem to be in this kind of bubble and all of a sudden they go on this date and the 1960s are happening around them <laughs> and it's a little bit more of that at berkeley but at the same time the image of benjamin waving a cross around and using it to bar a door i mean this is these are not <laughs> images you can get away with i think even two years earlier too yeah movies were changing pretty 
pretty rapidly. And I think also in terms of counterculture, um, I mean, this the she does go to Berkeley, so there's yeah. that there too. And I think that the and, landlord's and suspicion is not that, that outside agitator. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that he thinks he, that he thinks he's come to to cause that kind of trouble, political trouble. So that element is there as well. But this is a you know it's a transitional film um, from from one era to another. I mean, this is as you said in the uh, keynote, you know, Bonnie and Clyde came out. The same year. I mean, this is a very important year where cinema was changing, but it wasn't hadn't gone all the way. He <laughs> went all the way. <laughs> but I mean, that going all the way is is a big important part of it. I mean, this is I don't know how you fit Vietnam in here. It's a film about the the sexual revolution. It's mm. you know the, the pill came along in 1960 and it it changed how people approached sex and it started among the younger people. But this is fundamentally a film about the sexual revolution hitting you know upper class like high society wealthy people and changing how they relate to each other sexually and emotionally this is about a woman who's in a loveless marriage and says eh, eh, the hell with it i'll go have sex with the kid literally literally the kid next door <laughs> without eh, without physical consequences we'll say there's certainly emotional consequences we should circle back a little bit to the other lead in this film which is aunt bancroft mm-hmm. um she was only a few years older than hoffman and yet again this is i i can't imagine anyone else in this cast they kind of make her read older mm-hmm. than, than she is. I mean, there's there's the makeup and, and, and the, the hair, the mm-hmm. very put-together hair. And and, well, and, and it's in the performance, too. Sure. I mean, it's just the performance of an older woman. Just There's a, both a confidence and a world-weariness to the way she holds herself. Yeah, uh, she's, uh, she's made out of chill. Like, yeah. Ben has no chill. <laughs> Dustin Hoffman, as an actor, has no chill. And, and he brings that kind of, like, nervous, fiddly energy to what he does. But, like, the stillness of her is part of what makes the character work part of what makes the performance work is she's standing there with that cigarette she comes across as somebody who knows what she wants and just and almost enjoys watching him just tie himself in knots Mm -hmm. you know like you can tell she is getting off on it to a certain extent watching him stumble all over himself the way she goads him into finally going for it the whole i guess you're not inexperienced and you're not up to this yeah just that that, that (laughs) golfing experience really does play with your mind in terms of the actual age difference between the characters too just they do seem on separate sides of that divide in terms of experience and then the other part is just it's like mama's family right do you remember it wasn't the uh, actress who played mama and mama's family quite young <laughs> vicky lawrence was not an elderly woman no that's, that's true okay but yeah her manipulation of him there's a lot like mama's family in so many ways <laughs> <laughs> Her manipulation of him really does speak to the degree that she does not respect him. I keep coming back to the Robert Redford thing because one of the reasons it would have played so differently is I could really see her going after him for his body. And I have a much harder time seeing that with Dustin Hoffman. But seeing the way that she controls him, like, Scott, I think I think that you're right that she's a pleasure seeker, but I think she's possibly getting more pleasure out of the control over him than she's necessarily getting out of his nervous, inexperienced spindly little body well he's raw clay though right i mean she, she she can make him into whatever she wants he doesn't know what he's doing i don't think she wants to make him into anything though <laughs> i don't think that there's much to for him to be made into yet at this point in well, his into, life. into a into a functional sexual partner who doesn't really uh uh want anything more hmm. won't you unzip my dress i'd rather not mrs robinson if you still think i'm trying to seduce you. no i don't but i just feel a little funny benjamin you've known me all your life i know that but i'm just come a- on it's hard for me to reach Thank you. Right. What are you so scared of? I'm not scared, Mrs. Robinson. Then why do you keep running away? Because you're going to bed. I don't think I should be up here. Haven't you ever seen anybody in a slip before? Yes, I have, but I just... Look, what if Mr. Robinson walked in right now? What if he did? Well, it would look pretty funny, wouldn't it? Don't you think he trusts us together? Of course he does, but he might get the wrong idea. Anyone might. I don't see why. I'm twice as old as you are. How could anyone think that? But they would, don't you see? Benjamin, I am not trying to seduce you. I know that, but please, Mrs. Robinson, this is difficult. Would you like me to seduce you? What? Is that what you're trying to tell me? I'm going home now. I apologize for what I said. I hope you can forget it, but I'm going home right now. 
Among the film's innovations is the is the use of Simon and Garfunkel's songs as non-diegetic mood-setting music. They play out in full in one case, in one point two two songs in a row. This has been so imitated, but I, I think it's still really effective. Does, did it work for everybody else? The two songs in a row thing always strikes me as as too long without an interval. Mm. But I, I mean, I love the soundtrack. Yeah. I, I do think the repetition of Mrs. Robinson without without getting to completion of the song is a little much. It's like if you're going to use this much of the song use the whole song instead of repeating the same verse but i don't know is that like the one original song in the movie though uh, it is yeah, yeah. It, true it was already like mostly written though as here's to you mrs roosevelt right mm. yeah. yeah so uh, one little detail about the the way the music is used that i love is during that sequence at the end where ben is traveling to the church and stops for directions and, and runs out of gas and we have the the guitar strumming mm-hmm. the whole time and the way it just slows down as the car runs out of gas <laughs> it's I, I mean i guess that maybe almost makes it diegetic music at that point in, in, in a way <laughs> well it has but, to be on the screen though right isn't that yeah, yeah, yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but but it is part of the action for sure yeah that, that poor car i'll tell you one thing i've appreciated over the years is i as, I, as a kid i did not understand the distance between los angeles and san francisco i think we're talking <laughs> I thought it was like maybe like an hour. Yeah. <laughs> I felt so bad for that car by the end. Yeah. The other moment for me is is the song that plays over the credits is, is again, Sound of Silence, which was mm-hmm. plays at sort of the most pensive, contemplative, unsure moment in the film. And I think it's the perfect way to end that movie. And it also, it is really the one time when the lyrics hit the nail pretty hard mm-hmm. on the mm-hmm. head. Yeah. Um, uh, maybe a little too much. Uh, Hello, for, Darkness, for my, taste. my old friend. Exactly. Yeah. But I mean, you know, on the other hand, Parsley Sage was very, t- I don't know what <laughs> yeah. the hell that means, uh, but it's a nice, it's nice to have on the soundtrack. Well, it also, it also bookends the beginning where you hear Sound of Silence as he's on the people mover. And, and starting that movie with Hello, Darkness, My Old Friend, I just think it makes you see him so much differently than you. Like it, it makes him seem like a deeper character to me. Like being introduced with that thought, that like philosophical, like broad, depressive thought, as opposed to, I don't want to go to a party, just to me makes him a, a more emotional character than he might seem otherwise. I was playing this uh, song after I watched the movie, and uh, my daughter was singing along, like, how do you, where do you know this? I'm like, oh, I realized that my, she knows it because it's in the movie Trolls. Yep. Uh, where it's, <laughs> it's, it's used uh, probably, uh, probably less movingly. <laughs> it's know. still an awesome moment. Uh, I love that moment of the film so much. Right. And it, it's probably in part because of my attachment to that song. Like it's, sure. it is a ridiculous song to womp out in the middle of that movie. Should we talk about the final scene? Oh yeah. Oh, Tasha, go. It's perfect. It's it is one of the most perfect endings of a movie because it it leaves you. It would be so easy to end this movie as like the triumph of you know the kids have won. The kids are all right. Screw you, olds. We're we're running away and everything's going to be perfect. And instead, it leaves you with this understanding that just not being your parents isn't enough. Like being a negative isn't enough. You've got to be a positive. And these guys don't know what that positive is. They still don't know who they are. They don't know what their relationship is. They don't know where they're going. Uh, Charles Webb did eventually write, like 40 years later, wrote a sequel where Ben and Elaine are still together. They're married. They have kids. And Mrs. Robinson shows up and she's awful. And it just completely demystifies the entire story. Mm. (laughs) It's a terrible idea. Ending this movie on this completely completely open-ended moment of of doubt and what is the future is is such a, a bold and fascinating choice and and speaking of the source material and tasha i'll ask you to confirm this since i have not actually read the book but i read that really the only significant change from the book is in the book ben comes before the the priest has declared their marriage official and in the movie it happens like after you've kissed the bride and i now pronounce you man and wife like she is married at that point and that just underlines the magnitude of what they've done as opposed to him like rescuing her right before she is married i don't remember that detail it's been 10 years mm-hmm. i remember that one of the very few things in the movie that didn't come directly from the book was plastics like that's that's entirely <laughs> invented uh but no i don't remember the detail of exactly when he arrives okay well i apologize also, if i'm wrong but the book also, if i remember correctly also has a long early sequence where benjamin goes on like the sort of this faux kerouac road trip and just has a miserable time you know in his, in his searching for america which is, i remember being an amusing part of the book but it wouldn't it wouldn't work in the movie could have been another Simon and Garfunkel song there. <laughs> yeah. Before we wind up, there's so many great supporting performance in this. 
I, I would single out Murray Hamilton, who I think kind of gets overlooked a little bit as Mr. Robinson, but he's got a couple of great scenes. He's kind of like this sort of oblivious buffoon that develops teeth when he realizes what Benjamin has done. I love that scene of him confronting Benjamin. Uh, uh, he's he's sort of the unheralded MVP of this film. I like Buck Henry in the film. <laughs> I mean, the film is a comedy. We haven't really talked too much about yeah. <laughs> the laughter in the film, but but uh, Buck Henry knows what he's doing uh, on a comedy front and is a perfect deadpan uh, as the hotel clerk. Yeah, we should talk a little about the comedy angle. Uh, but first, to me, William Daniels is just he's, yeah. he's delightful. To me, William Daniels, like I never watched St. Elsewhere. So to me, William Daniels is the voice of Kit from Knight Rider. And just that, uh, you know, crisp robotic uh, efficiency uh, mixed with a certain amount of eye rolling despair at how stupid people are. And I feel like he brings that here. Just that that confusion about life. Life is grand. We're all rich and and we're surrounded by our friends. We have a pool. You have a new car. What is wrong with you? Come downstairs, <laughs> shake everyone's hand, and do as you're told. And he's just like as the portrait of brisk obliviousness. He is so good. Maybe one of my favorite scenes of the movie is him communicating with Benjamin when Benjamin is still in, in the pool house, uh, mm. saying, "Dad, yeah. can we talk about this?" <laughs> yeah, that, that comedy element. I we we talked a little about uh, like things that we discover anew when we rewatch this movie, and I feel like I've watched it enough times I don't discover things anew. But there are so many just like iconic sequences in this film, and my my memory elides over everything that is not part of that. So the part that gets me every time is the uh, the hotel door. <laughs> yes, he, he tries to go through the door, and there's a parade of senior citizens coming out, and then he starts to go in, and then there's a parade of young people going in, and it's just, I mean, symbolically, it's just this moment of like he's not in step with either generation, he doesn't know where he belongs, he's ineffectual, and and can't make decisions and people stomp all over him but just it's a it's a such a mike nichols moment of, of visual comic timing well, on that note i think we'll uh, we'll wrap this up and we'll be right back to get into some feedback on recent episodes We received a deluge of mail about our Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049 episodes, so much so that we're considering switching to an all-Blade Runner format. <laughs> Here are a few highlights, and we'll be posting more on our Facebook page and possibly featuring a few more in future episodes. Scott, can you kick things off? Uh, sure. Uh, Jacob writes, I thought you all completely missed the most intriguing part of Blade Runner 2049, the whole subversion of the quote-unquote chosen one trope. The first half of the film seems to be building on this tired plot construct, but the third act completely pulls it apart. That's when I fell in love with this movie. We start by watching Kay grow more and more certain that he has been bestowed this messianic importance. Joy even feeds into that by repeating throughout the movie that he is special. This myth that he creates for himself leads him down a path that completely destroys his life, only to have that myth unceremoniously ripped away from him by the leader of the rebellion. But even the rebellion's claim of the miracle birth is a lie. We find out that Rachel was designed by Tyrell to be able to give birth. And finally, when Kay is staring up at the giant hologram of joy, we are confronted with the slogan of her product flashing next to her giant naked body. Quote, everything you want to see, everything you want to hear, unquote. Let me know what you all think. Thanks for the show. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah. Um, it's our 100th episode, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I actually feel a little bad because we did very briefly touch on this in the episode, but I cut it out in editing because it didn't really go anywhere. So there's a little see how the sausage is, is made there. So I'm glad that I'm really glad that Jacob wrote in because it, I do think it's a, a pretty cool thing that the movie does and do i have an article for you one that i uh edited uh at vox.com by todd vanderwerf called the best thing about blade runner 2049 is what it isn't and it is talking exactly about what you were talking about the inversion of the chosen one trope todd vanderwerf yeah yeah he's his <laughs> guy he, he's his guy he writes some stuff we love you todd <laughs> you're not listening to us you have too many other podcasts to listen to we, we love you we miss you you are the chosen one todd it's not k you are the true chosen one yeah, but um, I totally missed connecting that with the joy slogan of everything you want to see, everything you want to hear. That's cool. Yeah, yet again, I think this is a movie I'm going to like more. 
the second time around. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I like thinking about this movie so much more than I enjoyed watching it. And that, that may be the sign of something that plays much better like a year from now after it's fully sunk in. I remember in the theater having a moment of, oh, God, he's not the chosen one. Thank goodness. Uh, because it didn't seem like something the movie had been hitting too hard, which I'm also glad of. But it was definitely something that was sinking in for him and uh, <laughs> that I was I was not a fan of. I, the problem was, I think, that seeing the trope uh, gradually seeming to accrete took me out of the movie to the point where <laughs> once the rubber band snapped and it was clear that wasn't where I, it was going, I maybe wasn't as uh, involved in it emotionally as I should have been. So as I suggested, we had mixed feelings about Blade Runner 2049. One reader had a possible explanation for this. Genevieve, can you share? Sure. Suzanne writes, while I love Dick's original story, I have never been a huge fan of the original Blade Runner. I appreciate how it has inspired other films and acknowledge it as a lovely piece of art, though not one that speaks to me. I saw 2049 because I was impressed by the early visuals. I was joined by my partner, who has largely the same reaction to the first film. After the credits began to roll, we turned to each other and exclaimed in excited unison, that's so much better than the original. A brief poll of friends and co-workers who have seen it has returned interesting results. People who love the original are lukewarm on the sequel. People who are lukewarm on the original love the sequel, and many claim it has inspired them to go back and watch the original with new appreciation. I haven't been able to draw any conclusions from that poll, or pinpoint exactly why the sequel has made me like the original more than I once did. I mean, it makes perfect logical sense. Like, if this world was interesting to you, but you feel like the first outing didn't do enough with it, I mean, of course you're going to like the second one better. If the first one has a, a warm place in your heart, you're going to see the one that comes along and, and does the same things in a different way is not a good thing. Yeah, and I mean, I think this this general trend can be applied at, at not quite such an extreme, because I, I think I, I said something to this effect on the podcast, but I think I liked Blade Runner 2049 the most among the four of us, and I am probably the least enamored of Blade Runner while still, I would never go so far as to say 2049 is better than the original in Keith's presence. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I'm probably the person at this table closest to saying something like that for the reasons you expressed, Tasha, because as I've said before, I, I really love world building. It's kind of one of the things I watch movies for, and 2049 is, I think, superior to the original Blade Runner in that one respect. However, the world, so much of the world was built well, yes. already. <laughs> By Ridley Scott That's and what they the call artisans. Catch 22, right? Yes. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to Blade Runner 2089, which is going to finally be the really great film that this franchise and this setting deserve. <laughs> Hopefully we'll be around to uh, talk about that. We received quite a bit of mail about these two Blade Runners and, and might return to it, but we didn't want to ignore feedback about another much-talked-about movie, Darren Aronofsky's Mother. Tasha, I believe you have a letter about this. <laughs> I do. We've edited this one for a little bit for length. Uh, Nathaniel writes... One point that you all brought up during your conversation was the way the politeness of Jennifer Lawrence's character is pushed to the absolute breaking point, and together with your more general considerations of the fragility of civilized behavior, as expressed in both Mother and The Exterminating Angel, it had me wondering if there had ever been a consideration of the place of politeness and courtesy in the horror genre. I'm struck by two recent films in the horror or near-horror genre that seem to find dread and terror in the place of politeness, or rather in its very limits. I'm thinking Mother, but also Get Out. In both cases, the courtesies of the protagonist lead them into their harrowing situations as they seek to make excuses for the intrusions and infractions made upon them. One way to read this is through, respectively, a gendered and racial lens, wherein both films cull from a long history, and present reality, unfortunately, of unequal power dynamics. Such dynamics, if I dare venture to guess in such wildly broad strokes, might account for the different tonal experiences you had to the film, where Scott, you found at least some moments in the film to be quite funny, but Tasha, you found them always to be quite anxiety-inducing. Are these events humorously absurd, or are they terrifyingly all too real? Again, I don't mean to gender essentialize, I'm just trying to come to terms with the different tonal resonances of the film. It's for this reason as well that I find Get Out to be a helpful companion piece, since it similarly toes the line of humor and horror. But I'm also wondering, with these two recent examples, if there's not some evocation of the broader political and social climate in 2017, which seems to have similarly exposed the limits of courtesy and civilized behavior. To see such social etiquette collapse, to see the complete ineffectiveness of courtesy and politeness played out, therein lies the horror of these films, and therein lies the horror of 2017. That's a good letter. Oh, so good. <laughs> so good. I almost think there's kind of a twas ever so aspect to it in terms of 
I don't know if societal collapse or the collapse of etiquette is really specific to now. I think that's something that, that films have always been reacting to from for years and years and years. I mean, you know, I think you could talk about something like um, the, the morality in slasher films, for example, as being uh, reflective of some social fears that are out, out there. You know, you know what I mean? I feel like, I guess Mother especially does, but Mother and, and Get Out do feel like films of their time, but... I don't know how broad you want to go with it. I mean, I think you can basically you can look at it as a, a couple of different layers. Like I understand, I understand, agree with you that the breakdown of the social fabric has been something that people have been concerned about literally since there has been writing. You know, there's there's like Roman Empire era writings that people have translated that, that basically say like the kids these days they're so rude and they they have no appreciation of their elders or mm-hmm. you know. Wait a minute, did the Roman Empire stick around? I can't remember. <laughs> I don't think we're living it out today. You want to head out to the vomitorium after this? <laughs> but that said, I do think that there's, I mean, you're you're a horror buff. You've written extensively mm-hmm. about this. You're aware that there are certain ideas that we return to for our anxieties age after age, but there are other ideas that we explore more and in more depth and in more movies, uh, you know, when, when that preoccupation comes to light. And I do think that there's a bit of a preoccupation in horror films, especially recently with like what what our conduct should be like and a get out is is such a good example because i think the first half of that film is entirely about microaggressions and proportionate response and the the discomfort of not knowing what the proportionate response is it's what makes it so squirmy uh, that's a, it's such a huge question though it's it's kind of has my brain scrambling a bit to think about it i mean just think about like different versions of invasion of the body snatchers and what all those stood for and yeah I, those two examples do feel very much of of today and responsive to what things that are going on today but i, I don't know i wonder what horror films are going to look like you know as we sink deeper into the current administration because uh, these would have been produced well you know before trumpism so. I think we're gonna we're gonna see a lot more purge style films that are specifically about how the breakdown and of decorum in society. I mean, the first purge films long preceded uh, you know Trump's current political movement, mm-hmm. but they were responding to political movements and and a tenor in society, and that's going to keep on going. And, and horror is really on top of that mm-hmm. more than any other genre. They really feel that vibe uh, before before it sinks seeps into other genres like dramas and comedies. Well, I just hope people are around to make them, and we're around to watch them. <laughs> Um, when all is said and done. And on that cheery note, as always, we appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may feature your response on a future episode or post on Facebook for discussion. That wraps up this episode of The Next Picture Show. In part two, we'll switch from a Dustin Hoffman character on the cusp of a new phase of his life to a Dustin Hoffman character on the cusp of, well, the last phase of his life. Look for that later this week, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts or your podcaster of choice. Find us at nextpictureshow.net, follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at, at nextpicturepod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, we'll be floating in the pool, wondering what to do with our lives. We'll see you next time. And the people bow and pray To the neon god they made And the sign flashed out its warning In the words that it was forming And the sign said the words of the prophets Are written on the subway walls The tenement halls Whispering